Well, good morning to all of you. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Please listen now as we consider God's inspired word, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let us pray. Father, we ask for your spirit now to be our guide, to teach us, to show us the way of the Lord Jesus. For we know that apart from him, we can do nothing. Thank you that ultimately the work of both justification and sanctification are not up to us, but up to you. And you are God. There's nothing impossible for you. So speak to us today. And make us more like your son, the Lord Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it is a well-known fact that certain things must be broken before they can be useful. An eggshell must be cracked before you can enjoy the nutritional benefits of the egg. A glow stick must be cracked before it can give you light. Even animals. A wild horse must be broken before it can be safely ridden. We understand this. What is difficult for us to understand is that this reality is not confined to inanimate objects or animals exclusively. The fact that brokenness comes before usefulness is quite applicable to the human experience as well. Now this morning I will limit myself and for this introduction to just one biblical example, perhaps the best known Job chapter 42. Please turn your Bibles to Job chapter 42. The first major element of the book of Job's is his tragic circumstances. Here's a man who goes from having everything to having nothing in just a matter of hours. He lost his possessions, his health, and even his children. He was undone. The book captures your attention from the very start by giving you an overwhelming sense of loss. The second major element of the book is Job's interaction with his friends, which makes up the bulk of the narrative. But at the end of the book, we find yet another major element 
in the narrative, and that is Job's fresh and renewed understanding of God, which takes us to chapter 42. And I want us to consider verses 5 and 6, where we read these majestic concluding words from Job's lips in reference to God. Job said at the end of his ordeal, I had heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. These words indicate a massive, life-transforming change in Job's mind and heart. There is something new taking place, particularly as it pertains to Job's understanding and knowledge of the holy. Misconceptions were shattered preconceived ideas disproven, darkness dispersed, and now Job can see something glorious. Job was brought very, very low into the mud of suffering, confusion, and pain in order to bring something new in him. He was undone in order to receive a fresh and more accurate vision of the glory and the greatness of God. Now, why do I draw your attention to those words? Well, because they could easily be placed in the lips of the man we are considering this morning from the book of Acts, namely Saul. Even though the circumstances are different, the end result of their experience with God is the same. If you think about it, Saul could take Job's words and say them for himself. It would go something like this. I had heard of you, Jesus of Nazareth, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Today, we're considering the undoing of Saul. And by that word, I mean to speak of Saul's conversion. On the road to Damascus, Saul underwent conversion, radical conversion. And much like the prophet Isaiah, who said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for my eyes have seen the king, so too Saul will say the same. And the first thing we notice about Saul's undoing is as follows. Saul was undone from his rebellious pride. From his rebellious pride. Chapter 8 ended in very happy terms. Philip, one of the first deacons of the church, was being used by God to bring about revival in Samaria and the conversion of the first Ethiopian. As soon as you enter chapter 9, however, you are hit in the face with a very sinister statement. Verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Who was this mystery man? Saul, of course, was the man who stood there approvingly while Stephen was being stoned to death, according to chapter 8, verse 1. But in Acts chapter 9, we see Saul actively taking matters into his own Hands. So who was Saul? Saul was a member of the religious party known as the Pharisees. These men made up the majority of the central 
religious and political council of Israel known as the Sanhedrin, right? Sanhedrin. Not only that, but Saul was also the recipient of a highly reputable education under one of the most renowned and well-respected rabbis of Israel. What was his name? Gamaliel, if that's how you pronounce it. Gamaliel, I think. Now, just a small glimpse of Saul's life and background lets us know that he was headed for a life of great success, which also gives us further insight uh, as to why he lived the way he did. Saul had to prove himself worthy of the privileges, the education, and the rank he had been afforded within Judaism. Remember that according to Acts chapter 7, verse 58, Saul was a young man. So even though he had been born into great privilege, he had plenty to prove for himself. In particular, he had to prove his zeal for the traditions of the Jews. And how did he prove his zeal? Well, we don't have to guess. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, as he reflected upon his former life, he tells us in no uncertain terms how he made his religious zeal known. He himself says this, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, a persecutor of the church. Persecuting Christians was his way to prove himself loyal to the Jewish cause and worthy, a worthy recipient of all its privileges. So what does he do? He goes to the highest authority in Israel, the high priest, and he says to him, in order to prove his zeal, I will show those Christians not to mess with us. I will take the lead in punishing them. Why? Because they are corrupting the Jewish religion by preaching about Jesus. Saul was convinced that to preach Jesus was to corrupt the purity of Judaism. But were they corrupting the purity of Judaism? Of course, they were not. You see, Saul had heard of God, but he hadn't met him yet. Now, what about Damascus? What about that city? Very ancient city, probably one of the most ancient cities in the history of the world, located about 160 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And many Christians fled to the city of Damascus during the outbreak of persecution that we read about in Acts chapter 7 and 8. Now Saul knew this, and he targeted that city. But this was also very strategic of him because there's another reason why Saul went to Damascus. Many devout Jews lived there, which led to the establishment of many synagogues or places of worship for the Jews. Saul's intention was to get the letters from Jerusalem approved by the high priest, go to Damascus, and use those letters to recruit other zealous Jews from those synagogues in order to strengthen the persecution of Christians. He was an evil man. He was determined to destroy Christianity. He wanted to bring it to an end. In fact, so hateful was Saul that Luke tells us or describes Saul as breathing threats and murder, meaning... The, this was the very air he breathed. He wanted to exterminate Christians. A terrorist. 
He was willing to destroy. He was willing to kill. He was willing to throw in prison. Destroying Christianity was Saul's single objective in life. That's all he wanted. And this was Saul's rebellious pride. He thought he was doing God a service when in reality he was living against God himself. Why? Well, because up until this point in his life, he had only heard of God by the hearing of the ear. But now Saul is about to meet God in person, meaning in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I know that as we read stories like these, we are often left wondering, so what? And that is a legitimate question. So before we go on, consider with me the doctrine that flows out of this passage, which has direct implication for us. And here's the first doctrine. True conversion assumes the presence of corruption within us. True conversion assumes the presence of corruption within us. And we could have used the word corruption, evil, sin, any of those words. Saul needed to be converted. He needed to be undone because even though he was religious, he was a man full of sin with deep corruption within And this is precisely where all of us, with no exception, can say a hearty amen. Amen. That's that's you, Saul. I'm good. No, this is the truth that applies to every single person in the world. We are all born with corrupted hearts that are blinded to the truth. Indeed, If there was no sin and corruption in us, conversion would not be necessary. Therefore, Saul, later on in his life, could say what he tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and of the mind. There's a very relevant point to be made, but I will save that for the end. Consider second with me, Saul was undone personally and directly. Consider verses three and four. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love how the first sentence in verse 3 basically opens up for us Saul's intentions a little bit. As he went on his way, Saul was minding his own business, doing what he pleased, being his own boss, calling the shots for his life, fulfilling his own desires. Saul was bent on accomplishing his own purpose until the unplanned happened. The Bible says literally that a light shone so bright and intense that Saul was physically thrown to the ground, which can easily be taken as the first sign of his undoing. Saul's purpose was literally and dramatically halted in a moment, and he went from being in a position of power and authority to being in a position of defeat. But please consider what he heard. Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, he called him by name. There was another occasion in which Jesus did the same. Do you remember? When standing in front of the tomb of one of his dear friends who was dead, the Lord Jesus also came, stood in front of the tomb, and what did he do? 
he also called him by name and said, Lazarus, come out. And so Lazarus came out of the tomb. Now notice that in both instances, the voice of the Lord Jesus went forth with specificity, with a name. Saul, Saul. Jesus did not say, hey, you angry guy, what are you doing? Not at all. He made it very, very personal. Saul heard his own name. Saul was on his way to deal with other people until all of a sudden he became the subject, the person being dealt with by someone far greater than himself. He was no longer the one in control. Rather, he was under control, which brings us to our doctrine. True conversion, brothers and sisters, true conversion is God dealing with us personally. Saul, Saul. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I am not saying that conversion means that we hear an audible voice from heaven. We are not seeking to have what Saul had. His conversion was very unique, but it was an example. It was an example for us. What is doctrinally and universally true is that when God comes to us by his spirit and through his word, he does so personally. In other words, when you are being converted, God deals with you personally. There is, I suppose, we could say a type of radical individuality in conversion. By that I mean when sinners are converted to Christ, they are the ones being dealt with by God's Spirit. You may not hear your name, but you know God is addressing you. He's speaking to you. His truth speaks directly to your heart. Clearly, the degrees of conviction of sin will vary from person to person, but there is no escaping the reality that in conversion, the cross of Jesus becomes very, very personal. In conversion is when you begin to see that Jesus died for you. I still remember when I believe the, the moment of my conversion, I believe, is when a pastor actually explained the gospel to me in his office. I had heard the gospel for years, but it wasn't until a pastor made it personal, made it personal, I understood that Jesus had died for me, that he came to save me. So I ask you, has God dealt with you, my friend? I'm not asking you, do you enjoy reading theology? I'm not asking you, do you enjoy singing worship songs or hymns? These things are good. I'm not against them. But the real question is, has God taken hold of your heart? Your heart, not the person next to you. You're probably thinking, well, I wish he did with this guy. But what about your heart? Has God taken hold of your heart, brought you to your knees, and opened your eyes to see your need, your need of Him? Occasionally, I will remind my kids of the importance of faith being something they personally have, their personal faith, rather than being something they just inherit from us. I want my children, each one of them individually, to know and love Christ personally. And I want them to confess their own sins to the Lord also personally because conversion is highly personal. It comes to us individually by name, as it were. Saul, Saul, 
Now, the gospel call goes forth universally to all people, but conversion is always personal because faith is personal. Fathers cannot believe on behalf of their children, neither can children believe on behalf of their fathers. Hence the words we read in Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Turn there really quickly with me. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. It's about the conversion of Crispus, uh, ruler of a synagogue. And listen to how it's described for us. Speaking of his conversion to Christ, it says, Acts 18, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. What does that tell you? Well, Crispus was converted along with everyone in his household because they together, they together, but individually believed the gospel. They believed the gospel individually. Conversion is God dealing with us personally. Third, consider with me, Saul was undone by the Lord himself. By the Lord himself. Verses five and six. And he, Saul, said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Here comes the moment of truth in which Saul's entire life was undone. His entire life was undone. After being called by his own name, he is then given the name of the one who is speaking from heaven, and his entire world is shattered to small pieces. I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. This was undoubtedly Saul's turning point. This is when he discovered that he had been wrong all of his life. As the hymn says, he was blind, but now he could see. Let me share with you two doctrines that we draw from this. True conversion is divine intervention. True conversion is divine intervention. We need to be careful, right? Because we're not seeking to experience the same thing that Saul experienced. It won't happen again. But these are universal truths that apply to all of us at all times. Conversion is always divine intervention. Even though the circumstances surrounding Saul's conversion are not repeatable due to the fact that the apostolic age has been closed for over 2,000 years and there's only one apostle, Paul, still holds true that every conversion must be initiated by God. After all, Jesus is the one who builds his church. It's quite apparent from these verses that Saul, if you think about it, he was not looking to be converted to Christ on that day, wouldn't you say? He did not wake up th that morning thinking, I hope I encounter Jesus today so I can abandon all my evil ways. No, in fact, he thought he was right in wanting to persecute Christians. He wanted to persecute Christians. He was breathing threats and murder. That was his life. Saul, I remind you today, had no intentions whatsoever to be converted on that day to Christ. He was not predisposed. He was not leaning toward. He was not hoping for conversion. 
He was bent on destroying the Christian faith. And thus, that's a critical lesson for us. Unless God intervenes, there can't be any conversion. Why? Well, because Christians are a divine creation, not a human work. If you are a Christian this morning, it's because God called you to himself. It's not because you are better than someone else. Christians are a divine creation, not a human work. If you don't believe me, just ask Saul. The second doctrine is this. True conversion comes with the recognition of lordship. True conversion comes with the recognition of lordship. Who are you? Lord. This is yet another element present in every instance of conversion. Jesus, when we are converted to Christianity, Jesus is always recognized for who he is. We don't really know to what extent Saul knew the identity of the one speaking to him, but he knew enough to call him Lord. Saul knew lordship when he saw it. You see, this is an important point, brothers and sisters, very applicable, especially to contemporary evangelicalism. Conversion is not about making Jesus Lord or making Jesus your Lord. Why? Well, who did that? Who, makes, who made Jesus Lord? God the Father has already declared Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. That declaration of lordship came from the Father to the Son, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 36. The Father has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Jesus already is Lord. Rather, conversion is about acknowledging, recognizing Christ's lordship and willfully submitting to it. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord, you will be saved. Conversion is about confessing what Jesus already is. Notice next with me. Saul was undone to unto humble repentance. Saul was undone unto humble repentance. Verses 7 through 9, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I believe the words in verse 7 are there to prove to us that what happened was not a dream. It was not a dream. It was a real event. It was an audible, audible voice that was heard by those present. We're not told who those companions of Saul were, but they were with Paul trying to accomplish the same evil purposes. But now we see the mighty Saul in a different light. The outspoken, zealous Pharisee is now in complete silence. In fact, when you read Acts 9, that is striking. If you put attention to what Saul does, he is in complete silence. I wonder if Proverbs chapter 30, verse 32, came to Saul's mind. Proverbs 30, verse 32 says this, If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. I wonder if that verse came to 
Saul's mind. Here's a doctrine that we learn from this. True conversion involves reaching the end of ourselves. True conversion involves reaching the end of ourselves. Saul, the great Pharisee, obstinate, sure of himself, with a deep sense of power and authority, was stripped of everything. One encounter with Jesus emptied him of everything he once held dear. This explains the root of the words he wrote later on in his life by divine inspiration in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, where he said, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The things in which Saul boasted were shown to be worthless when compared to his knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's a second doctrine, very, very important. I have alluded to this already. I want to just go a little deeper. True conversion is a change of allegiance. True conversion is a change of allegiance. Go in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. There is one detail that we are not given in Acts chapter 9, at least not in the ESV Bible. And what I mean by the change of allegiance is true conversion involves the understanding that my life is not my own, but that I, in both body and soul, belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. In other words, true conversion is not just a conversion away from sin, but unto obedience. Now, I get that from Acts chapter 22, verse 10. In Acts chapter 22, the apostle Paul will recount his conversion once again, and he gives us another important detail. Consider with me, in Acts chapter 22, verse 10, the very first question that came out of his mouth after his encounter with Jesus. What is the first thing he said? What shall I do, Lord? That question is like a signpost. It tells us that true conversion has happened and that sanctification has begun. This is the question in the mouth of every true believer in the Lord Jesus, and it is the heart of sanctification. What shall I do, Lord? This is what conversion involves. Asking that question is the beginning of a life set apart for God. So the one who has been converted to the Lord asks, what shall I do as a husband? Lord, what shall I do as a wife, Lord? What shall I do as a son or a daughter, Lord? What shall I do as a citizen, Lord? What shall I do at work, Lord? What shall I do, Lord, when I suffer? What shall I do, Lord, when everything is fine? What shall I do, Lord? Is that how you live your life? I ask you. I'm not asking, do you always know the answer to that question? I'm not asking that. Rather, I am asking, is that question always on your mind? Is that question always on your heart? After his conversion, Saul lived his entire life asking that single question, what shall I do, Lord? In other words, is it your aim in life above all other aims to please Christ? 
That is the mark of a true child of God. Now, I have a few things that I want us to ponder upon as we begin to bring this to an end. Just a few points, I think four. The first thing that I want us to ponder upon and to consider maybe further as you go home and consider what you have heard, the first thing is this, the glory of our union with Christ. Did you see union with Christ in this passage? It's all over the passage. In particular, in the question Jesus asked of Paul. Remember what Jesus asked him of Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting my people? He could have asked that, but he didn't. Jesus asked instead, why are you persecuting me? How? Saul was persecuting people on earth. Jesus is in heaven, exalted at the right hand of the Father. Why would Jesus ask that question? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why? Because our union with Christ through faith is such that persecution against the church is persecution against the Lord himself. Because he sees himself as in perfect union with his children. Brothers and sisters, let us not forget of this astounding truth. We are one with the Lord. He has united himself to us by the Spirit. Consider number two. Ponder upon this wonderful truth, the sovereignty of Christ over all things. The sovereignty of Christ over all things. In his book, The Puritan Hope, Ian Murray says, and I quote, The gospel of grace does not need promising conditions to make its reception a certainty. Such a result depends upon the will of him who declares his love to thee ungodly. End quote. I love what he said. Few other examples can provide a greater certainty that Jesus, the risen Lord, is indeed sovereign over the salvation of sinners as the example of Saul does. Praise God, brothers and sisters. The progress of the gospel does not depend on human will or intellectual receptivity. Ultimately, the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ depends on him. Depends on him. Oh, again, Ian Murray commenting on John Calvin's understanding of the lordship and the sovereignty of Christ over the salvation of sinners and the spread of the gospel said this, and I quote, this is what Calvin did, quote, Calvin recovered from the New Testament the whole concept of Christ's lordship and sovereign glory in the carrying out of man's redemption. And he brought to the fore the truth that the mediatorial work of Jesus did not cease at his death and resurrection, that the work for the gathering and perfecting of his church continues. And its ultimate success rests securely upon the position with Christ, which Christ now occupies. Lordship is his present possession, Romans 14, 9. He has been given power over all flesh, John 17, 2. Further, he has been given power in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18, 18 so that in the interest of his mediatorial kingdom, Jesus governs the universe. Jesus governs the universe, end quote. 
This being the case, and the absolute truth, Christ's calling is always effectual, meaning when he calls sinners, sinners come. When he calls sinners, sinners come to him, as seen in the fact that when Jesus said to Saul, rise and go, Saul rose and went. Once again, we are reminded of Job's concluding words when after his ordeal, he said to God in Job 42.2, he said to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Undoubtedly, Saul reached the exact same conclusion on that day regarding the Lord Jesus. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Here's the mighty man humbled before the presence of Christ. Please note also that this is not only a demonstration of Jesus' sovereignty over the single salvation of Saul, but over every aspect of his life. And not only that, but it also demonstrates the sovereignty of Jesus over all of history. Over all of history. Think about this. Without exaggeration, you and I are here this morning to a large extent because of what happened in Acts chapter 9. You and I are here to a large extent because of what happened in Acts chapter 9. Saul became the great apostle to who? To the Gentiles. 2,000 years later, we are still seeing the fruits of his conversion, and all of it was under the sovereign hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. Consider next the heart of true conversion. The heart of true conversion. What is the heart of true conversion? Knowing God and knowing ourselves. Knowing God and knowing ourselves. True conversion comes with a radical worldview alteration. The sin which we all inherit from our parents leads us to think of life, the world, our purpose, our meaning, and everything else as centered on on us. So sin creates this delusion that all of life is about our purposes, our pleasures, and our likes and our dislikes. Sin corrupts the reason for our existence. And why do we exist? Or as the Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man. The reason you exist, the reason you were born is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Sin corrupts this truth and turns us into self-glorifying creatures who seek self-enjoyment. Conversion, the type that Saul underwent, involves a radical alteration, a comprehensive restructuring of this corrupted view. On that day, Saul's entire worldview was changed forever, and he became a world changer, literally because he understood who God is and he understood who he is himself in light of who God is. This reminded me of Martin Luther, the great German reformer of the 16th century. One Christian writer from India explained the extraordinary force that moved Luther to become such an agent of change in his own world, in his own time, and why he became such a bold promoter of truth. And this is what he said. And I won't tell you his name because I don't know how to pronounce it. But here's what he said, quote, Luther changed Europe. 
because he found something worth singing about, something worth living for, and something worth dying for. He found a covenant relationship with the Almighty God, a relationship he could count on. It was a faith, a worldview upon which his decadent world could be rebuilt. Yet it was far more than an idea or creed. It was a vibrant relationship with someone who was worth dying for, a love affair worthy of songs, end quote. That explains, that describes Saul's experience on the road to Damascus. Christ found Saul and reminds us of that truth. We're not the ones looking for him. He's the one looking for us. And on that day, Christ found Saul on the road to Damascus and shattered everything. Saul was undone, but in the most glorious possible way. His undoing led to his remaking. And I finish with this. The only hope of the world. The only hope of the world. The universality of corruption is undeniable. Human sin from birth is one of the most self-attesting realities in the, entire, in the entirety of our existence. If you have any children, you know that's true. Saul learned that lesson on the road to Damascus. He thought of himself righteous, but quickly came to see himself as wretched and in need of salvation. Why does this matter? Well, you know that in our day, there is a war against conversion. You have heard of the anti-conversion therapy movement, coming in particular from the homosexual circles. What is that? That is, that is a war against the gospel. That is a war against the Christian message because at the very heart of the Christian message, what, it, what do we say? The very heart of the Christian message is the reality, uh, the necessity to be transformed. That we are sinners who need to be transformed by the power of Jesus who died and rose again. So what do we say to that? Well, we stand against that and we say people need to be converted. They need to be converted out of their sin and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the world needs, is for us to be faithful, to continue to proclaim the gospel. Unless people are converted from their sin and to Christ, there is no hope for the world. We don't need any more social movements. We need the gospel. So what do we do? What is our call? We preach Christ. We continue to preach Christ, the only hope of the world. So I finish this with this one question. What is the most important thing about you? What is the most important thing about you? When you hear that question, where does your mind go? What is the most important thing about you? Where does your mental index finger point to? Is it your job, your career, your education, your family background, your finances, that house, that car outside? What is the most important thing about you. I can tell you what the most important thing about you is without even knowing you. And it is one single question. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? All things can be gone. We can have everything today and lose everything tomorrow. There's only one thing that endures forever. 
knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us pray together this morning, and let us thank the Lord for this reminder this morning that Jesus is a faithful Savior who will not let us live in our sin, but who comes and saves us from it. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the reminder that we have been given this morning through the life and the experience of the Apostle Paul, who at some point in his life was lost in darkness, was an enemy of the truth, an enemy of God himself. And yet, Christ, you are a merciful and gracious Savior. And you are in the business of reconciling your enemies. In fact, we know that Christ Jesus died for those who were his enemies. He shed his blood upon the cross to reconcile those who were hostile to him. And we are among them. We thank you because we have been brought out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And help us, Lord, to rejoice in this wonderful, amazing, life-changing truth that we belong to the Lord Jesus. And I pray that if there is anyone in this room who has been running against you, against your truth with a rebellious heart, I pray that even today, you will come to them and change everything. That they will see their true sin. That they will be brought to repentance. That they will see Christ as a wonderful and loving, sufficient and powerful Savior. And we ask these things because we know that you have the power to save. It is not up to us. It is up to you. And so we depend fully upon your Spirit to do the work of redemption, that invisible work, work that we cannot see and that we know that you're doing among us. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.